0: Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. I have uh, sometimes quoted approvingly Thoreau's line that there are nowadays professors of philosophy but not philosophers. I think it's really important to reflect on that and the meaning of it for our culture. And I have a very special pleasure then today to uh, be with a philosopher who is also a professor, a professor who is also a philosopher. And that's quite a rarity, and it's very special. It's a real privilege and uh, a joy to speak today with Jason Wirth. I uh, I discovered him... uh, By reading one of his more recent books, not his most recent book, Mountains and Rivers and the Great Earth, reading Gary Snyder and Dogen in an Age of Ecological Crisis. What a delightful title. And as I started reading this, I knew that he was an academic, but very quickly I realized this fellow must be a practitioner. He must be a philosopher. And it's important to realize that you can tell the difference by reading a text even. And upon further inquiry, it turned out that, indeed, he is a deep practitioner. Tetsuzen Jason M. Worth is professor of philosophy at Seattle University and an ordained Soto Zen priest. As a philosopher, he teaches and writes in the areas of continental philosophy, Buddhist philosophy, the philosophy of art and aesthetics, and the prospects for world Philosophy. He is the author of several books, including Nietzsche and Other Buddhas, Philosophy After Comparative Philosophy, and the one I just mentioned, Mountains, Rivers, and the Great Earth, reading Gary Snyder and Dogen in an Age of Ecological Crisis. And also, he co-edited the volume engaging Dogen's Zen. He is currently the associate editor of the journal Comparative and Continental Philosophy. As a Soto Zen priest, he is the founder and co-director of the Seattle University eco Sangha, a resident priest at Aishoji Soto Zen Training Facility in Seattle, and is the chair for Inter-Religious Dialogue at Seattle University. Tetsu Zen, welcome to Dangerous Wisdom.
1: Thank you so much. I'm very happy to be here, and I, I really adore that. Evocation of thorough. Um, I've always taken that observation to heart. Um, as a matter of fact, uh, I take it in the same way that I take the Dharma name I was bestowed, uh, Tetsuzen. Your Dharma name is not a certificate of accomplishment. It's a challenge. You know, it's not what you've done. It's what you should do. And so a good Dharma name speaks to your blind spot and your weak spot and forces you to go more deeply. So Tetsuzen, the, the kanji zen is zen, like zen practice. The tetsu, if you just heard it, it sounds like it could be the tetsu and tetsugaku. That's the Japanese word for philosophy, the study of the great iron solid matters. But it's not. The tetsu is an older character, meaning to break through or to penetrate, to break through philosophy. Um, not to avoid philosophy. Not that philosophy is not worthless. Uh, but not to get stuck on philosophy, but to ground philosophy more deeply. And I think also Thoreau's, uh, evocation, uh, is a good koan and a good Dharma name for all those who, uh, somehow try to hold together philosophy in the academy. You know, your job will be to some extent to profess. Um, but the challenge is to philosophize mm. and to, always remember that the institution is only a home for philosophizing and certainly not necessarily the best home, Mm -hmm. Uh, but to take that responsibility very seriously.
0: Yeah, yeah. And Pierre Adot also approvingly uh, cited that line. Do you know Adot's work? Oh, I
1: sure do. And I agree with him, by the way, that philosophy is a way of life rather than... uh, intellectual shtick or the thesis that for whatever reason you've appended and tied your entire identity to and you fight for something that no one understands as if it were a matter of life and death no it's the matters the great matters of living and
0: dying mm. yeah yeah i mean that goes back to the roots of our lineage as uh people children of the dominant culture that uh, plato taught us that that philosophy is training for death it's real it's not some yes uh-huh um, so it's interesting because, you know, Addo, I there aren't too many works of philosophy written by people who were in the academy of, say, the past, I don't know how many years that I would actually recommend to anybody, but I sometimes think of Ado's work as worthy yes. of recommendation. And your book is actually also a book that I would recommend. There's another one that often comes to mind is uh, Mark Rowland's book, The Philosopher and the Wolf. Yes, I like Um, that book. It's wonderful. And what's so hilarious about it is that he he rejects it as a work of philosophy, even though it's about life, death, happiness, interspecies uh, understanding, and mutual illumination. And he says this is not a work of philosophy. And I think it's it's just so good.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's it's a deep issue already. You know, on the one hand, um, yeah, many of the philosophers that I love most are extremely uncomfortable with the word philosophy. Uh, You think of Heidegger, you know, uh, the end of philosophy and the beginning of thinking. Uh, I think of the great uh, Czech novelist Milan Kundera, who insists again and again, never, this is a novel of thought, it is not philosophy. And these pushes, of course, are also extremely philosophical. And if we remember, you know, philosophy's inaugural energy is its deepest question. What is philosophy? It's an extremely philosophical question, but we live in a world in which we take the inaugural mystery of thinking as uh, its current practices, which we can take for granted. And so from the get-go, the entire enterprise is born, stillborn. And we become uh, sad administrators of the dogma and the decision and the status quo and what's taken for granted. And we just forget that Well, many of us got interested in philosophy because it was liberating. We experienced it as slaughtering all of these sacred cows, uh, and and in a very sacred way, you know, what Zen calls the great doubt, you know, the moment in which all the garbage that is the taking for granted platonic, you know, cave in which everything has been set up for me, all that begins to shake and crumble. And for this to end up as territorial disputes over micrological irrelevancies at which we stake our our entire identity, uh, it's a great loss. Might even go so far as to say it's a tremendous lack of gratitude and responsibility for all the resources invested in you in being able to have these skills. You know, you're given the, the keys to the gate. Uh, and you, you bury them in your backyard and stare at yourself in the mirror. Mm.
0: Well, it's got to be that way. As I often uh, say, you, you can't maintain the level of dysfunction that we have in the dominant culture unless you have a dysfunctional education system. It has to function to protect citizens from philosophy. It can't allow them to
1: engage in this project. Absolutely. And I like the very liminal way you set it up. And um, you mentioned my work uh, in friendship with Gary Snyder. He's a wonderful uh, case in point. Uh, As some of your listeners may know, Gary Snyder was also a professor of creative writing at University of California at Davis. So he was not adverse to being in the academy, but he was skeptical. Now, he spent his entire life on the borderline between the human and the non-human, between the civilized and the wild um, between the academy and thinking and living um, to be in that space of negotiation. Uh, and so Snyder's own life has also often been for me, a koan in this way, but I admit it's a mere image. He was someone who stood outside the academy and then came in in his own terms. Uh, I'm someone who was, is in the academy trying to step outside the academy and keep this position philosophical, which means liminal, open, attuned to the great expanse.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, it's really good to have people like you on the inside, because in my limited teaching career in the university, what I found is that students were incredibly hungry for oh, yeah. real love wisdom. The soil is so parched. This also explains the rise of... You know, so figures like Jordan Peterson, who's, who's you, you know, he's, he's doing popular philosophy and people are so starved for it that, that they really seem to sincerely be saying, this guy saved my life. And, oh. uh, you know, it's we are just that far away from wisdom, love, and beauty. So it's really wonderful that you're on the inside. Do you find yourself, um, I mean, obviously there are so many ways that one could shift then. Um, how one relates to the practice of teaching and, and philosophizing within that ecology. W- what are some of the things that you do to try to open up the practice of philosophy? You make it a more, as oh, you like... point out, more rigorous, actually. You know, that's the fun
1: <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I would like to write books that I wouldn't mind reading, teach classes that I wouldn't mind taking. I mean, it sounds very simple, you know, uh, and by that I don't mean... Uh, to imagine that everyone has to have my taste or think about the world the way that I do. Um, but to remember, um, and as the Lotus Sutra says, the Dharma rain falls equally on all, but each receives it in their own way. So the earth receives it more heavily than the rock does, but it's still the Dharma rain. It produces immense variegation, not sameness, but really it's also the same life energy and the same life questions, and the same deep sense of the great matters. And, I mean, I like something that uh, Gilles Deleuze once said about philosophy. You know, and he of course was somebody else who was very prominent in the academy, and very skeptical of being housed in that way, even though he succeeded in a French context hugely in that way. But he stayed away from the main Parisian universities, uh, opting to be in the uh, part of the system that would have had much more immigrant students uh, went his own way, but he said philosophy, on the one hand, is presented as the demand that people have our answers. And he said, "Well, first of all, answers to what questions? Why? Why are we saying these things? Why are we doing these things? You know, given that everything is done this way, how did it come to be done this way?" And you immediately see that really what the teaching of philosophy traditionally does uh, is that it suffocates the mysteriousness of what it does because philosophy is to live in these questions, not for you to buy my answer. We're already there because we have the same questions and to be very good at not just articulating the questions, but allowing them to come alive and to show that um even the differences by which we stand in relationship to these questions, we're, we're still taken by the energy of these questions and still very much the children of these questions.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. No, at the same time, though, that standing, that really holding the question like a, a candle in the heart, really standing with it or in it is not to make the error that we often hear, that philosophy is all questions with no answers. I mean, this is a, a way to dismiss philosophy for a lot of people because those, holding those questions does lead to transformative
1: insight. Oh, absolutely. First of all, uh, to have a right to the questions means that you have a chance on having a good answer.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Not the just the answer has been decided for you. You have a chance to to live an authentic answer. Um, so, in a way, we always think, too, okay, well, what's deeply behind philosophy being all questions and no answers? Well, how are we thinking about answers? I think we're thinking about answers already in a very totalitarian way and really are will we come to philosophy already governed by the symptoms that philosophy in a very helpful way could help you unearth, which is some totalitarian sense that I am going to live the answer. Uh, I don't know, answer to what? (laughs) It's more important to live the answer. The answer never swerve. Um, I'll experience the question as making my whole sense of being tremble. And this is, I think, what philosophy has in common with Zen. And why I think, for me at least, Zen has been so beneficial. Um, It's what uh, the Zen tradition calls the great doubt. And the great doubt at first is extremely paralyzing. Because the question comes up and you can see these kind of very desperate and maybe heartfelt, very real, uh, but very neurotic responses. You know, there are no answers. There are. And of course, it's an absolute panic. And of course, beneath that panic is the very ground of yourself starting to shake. Now, it's not starting to shake because someone's imputing something new and false. Something is becoming very clear that you're in denial of. And as it begins to shake, this is the great doubt, much more fundamental than a Cartesian doubt, which always protects the self. This is the self itself coming into crisis. But that's just the husk coming apart because the seed of the great death, which is the opening to the great expanse, to the deep place from which we negotiate our good answers, our grounded answers, beyond what Stevens called, you know, the official view. And so, you know, the way philosophy is dismissed, it is how deeply we've internalized the official view and how much we're running away from our own doubts and our own questions. But I also think, you know, of Carl Jaspers, who said in the 1950s on the Swiss radio show on philosophy, um, we were all born philosophers, as in, Uh, when we're carted off to synagogue or church uh, or a funeral. uh, Why are we going to this? Why do we do this? We have no knowledge, but we have a philosophy. And so, okay, you know, you're already in the great expanse. Uh, Let's get some knowledge. Let's get some good answers. Let's get good at this. Let's see that this is the life of thinking and living. But instead... We teach knowledge in such a way that it suffocates the questions, and so we do the. We use the very thing that we're seeking most deeply to suffocate why we think and learn at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, let me ask you. Now, you, you, I don't know what you intended by it, but I heard a distinction between philosophy and Zen where I would would, would not make one. What, what do you mean when you?
1: Oh, you know, um it's a very tricky thing. On one hand, of course, on some level, um Zen is everything. You now, you sit so that there's no distinction, finally, if you get good at it um, or make some progress at it, that you're sitting when you stand, you're sitting when you're walking, you're sitting when you're living, you're sitting when you're dying, as in you're clarifying your mind for all things. So in a way, were those things to include philosophy, because you can do Zen and be no good at philosophy, but you can still have a good practice. Were you to do philosophy, I would say it's this way. It's Zen philosophy. It doesn't mean that you have to ever think about the Zen tradition philosophically, although I think that would be a huge missed opportunity not to do so. Um, but you do philosophy with a different sort of a mind. I mean, the Zen tradition, as you know, One of its many teaching stories that make this point is to imagine the mind as a mirror. That's a very deep image of knowing because it shows all things as they are without favoritism. You know, the ugly as well as the beautiful, success as well as failure. The problem is the mind is dusty. And so all it sees, no matter what you show it, is a dusty world, the dust of the everyday world. And so to take the dust off the mind means you see everything clearly, including philosophy, so in that little wedge, I'd want to say that if Zen is the mind to which you'd bring to everything, even philosophy, even thinking philosophically about Zen itself, you know, um, there's lots and lots of philosophical studies of Zen that do not have a clean mirror, that do not have Zen mind. And so I think the absolute master at this very subtle distinction is Dogen himself. I mean, there is no greater philosopher about Zen mind uh, in the history of world thought that I know of. That is, the, there's tons of great thinkers, and it, the, the world is much more variegated than Dogen's world. But just from a philosophical perspective, the enormous skill and insight that someone like Dogen has about Zen mind, is it's it's stunning. But here's the thing. You can appreciate him along simply analytic modes and you would still be very impressed because he is, the more you study him, the more it becomes clear how extraordinarily rigorous he was in an analytical sense. But if you don't have that Zen mind, you have nothing. You have nothing because he is using that as a tool among tools. Um, as a, as a, the, the tradition speaks always of upaya, skillful means. He's using philosophy as a skillful means to demonstrate the depth of mind, the depth of the universe, which are the same thing. Mm. And so, Zen mind made Dogen a great philosopher. Zen mind, and if you have no philosophical ability, well, try your best. Uh, but it's okay. Not everyone's Dogen. Um, but I think clarifying your mind is even deeper than philosophy. But for some people, I think philosophy becomes indispensable for certain cast of mind. Now it's the part of the Zen tradition that was really good at trying to get you to deepen, uh, the clarification by being able to think rigorously about it. That's what Koan study does. Uh, that's what reading the Shobogenzo by Dogen does. That's what deep philosophical dialogue, which has been a feature of the Mahayana tradition from the beginning. Um, Philosophy can't get you to your mind, but your mind can make you a better philosopher.
0: Hmm. That's a very interesting way to think about it, you see, because I, I, my sensibility about philosophy is a little different, and, or maybe not. Maybe it's just the way that we would – see, when you, uh, you were talking about Jasper saying, well, hey, uh, you don't know what you're doing when you go to the synagogue, philosophy is kind of what got you there. And so it, it is. It, it, so there's that part of it. So that is to say that, no, you couldn't just go sit. It had to be. It's a philosophical decision even to value it, to try it. Yeah. Moreover, when you were talking about those questions, like the great doubt, that is what philosophy is trying to get us to to surrender to. And so in other words, what I would say is that Dogen's Zen mind is the realization of love wisdom. It's not that love-wisdom is separate. That's why you can't read him and think you can understand him, because he's doing rigorous philosophy, which means whole body and mind. That is mm-hmm. thats the, that the realization of love-wisdom is when you, you see Dogen living and writing, I would think, yeah. you know.
1: I mean, I don't resist that at all. I think we're very close, if not in the same position. You know, As an academic philosopher, I, you know, I mean, were I to say, if you push me personally... Do I think Dogen is the consummation of the hidden seed in the husk of philosophical thinking? I do. I absolutely do. I think that's philosophy at its greatest. I think it's not just Zen that has discovered that. I think that has been there in the world tradition. I think philosophy has often been put to an extremely noble use in this way uh, in many cultures at their height, at their wisdom height. Um And I think, you know, the capacity of philosophy to also help sharpen what's happening to you as you engage it with other practices zen for example with with sitting and with working um that's all the case you know of course i do realize that there are plenty of people who imagine that they're doing philosophy in a way that is not a not only ignorant of this but extremely fearful and allergic to it um and so again, I just want to push, you know, what I'm really, what I'm doing is I'm trying to push that in philosophy and, and, you know, it's not all philosophy that's going to be able to clarify its own activity rigorously enough that it's going to be able to find this heed, this seed. That seed is there in all philosophy. Just like, you know, in the great doubt, the great doubt is just the transition phase. You know, what's opening up was always there. As Dokkan says, you know, everywhere nothing hidden i mean don't blame reality for your own delusions you know it's your delusions you know it's not revealing itself is that you can see a little better you can philosophize a little better um but i have to say also you know the following is helpful for some people um you know you are a very strong philosophical education uh, the defamation professional of that, of course, is you get lost in your own head. Um, you know, you you don't know how to clean your own dishes, but, you know, you'll speak at, at length on metaphysics for days and days. Your kids are running away from you. You have no friends, but, you know, you think it's a confederacy of dunces. No one understands how brilliant you are. I think just a Zen stick to your head may save your life. And so I just want to preserve, you know, the, the, the toolkit that we have to have. You know, to me, it's just a question of, so I think really I'm just emphasizing, uh, maybe from my own philosophical training, the order for people like myself, the way they have to go, which is, you know, there are certain blocks in the professional transmission of philosophy that is very hard for philosophy to undo, not because it doesn't intrinsically have these powers, it's because that's not how it's taught. Except maybe on this podcast and other places, but you know it's yeah. as by your own admission you know you're this is the power of the minority report on the official view,
0: yeah, yeah, and it is you know there's also the the courage that it takes, you know, because Plato wrote about that, you know, if you believe the seventh letter is his and and he 's saying, you know uh, the answers aren 't in the dialogues, and what i what somebody has to have this passion that catches fire and becomes a kind of self consuming fire. And there, I really think that the dialogues are about these, some of these challenges. I mean, that's why the aporia is there. That's why Socrates gets you to the place where you say, look, I just don't know. And it's really why I think he, uh, Plato was wanting us to see that this was a life and death matter, because we have to confront our fear and go to that liminal space that you were talking about. I was thinking of one of uh, Snyder's uh, poems where he re- where it writes, How Poetry Comes to Me. Oh, he, 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 yeah, it comes blundering over the boulders at night. It stays frightened outside the range of my campfire. I go to meet it at the edge of the light. And I think Sophia calls us to the edge of the light, you know, to the place where it's a little scary. We have to leave the campfire. We have to leave the things that we think we know, which as you put it very well, we are we're carrying our symptoms. <laughs> and how yeah. do how do we how do we shake free from that? Yeah, I mean,
1: I would say you know um, this is in the philosophical tradition. I think it's even in Plato. That would be a long conversation. I love Plato. I think, uh, and I agree with your your take on him. By the way, it's not the standard take in the Academy, which fetishizes the details. Uh, and I think not just the seventh letter. I love the seventh letter. But let's just say, for the sake of argument, we don't accept that. I do, but let's say we don't. It's just that same insight's already there from just being attentive to the experience of reading dialogues rather than some hard exposition, you know, the purpose of which is to trap you in the conclusion. You know, it's to bring you in to a performance of thinking that Plato is enacting. And it's to bring you into what happened to him when he met Socrates. It didn't change so much, you know, I'll have a new idea. It changed his experience of his own mind.
0: That's it, yeah. It's a transformation in the knower. And that's, again, too, where there's this, you, you, for me, no, non- uh, distinction between Zen and philosophy, because that's what Dogen is teaching us, non-thinking. He's teaching us a revitalized thinking, the thinking of a person who is different from the stuck thing that you've made
1: yourself right now. Yeah. yeah. I mean, already in the Fukanza Zengi, so the very first piece that he wrote coming as he re- came back from China, mm. you know, it's not the fantasy would shut off thinking. It's to get to the heart, to the depth. And of course, what he's saying then is to really be able to think. And this is true of a good philosopher. Well, in any culture, um, the block is really going to be the ego. You know, as both Nietzsche and William James once said, you know, in the sentence, I think one of those terms has to be false. <laughs> you know, you can't get both. You can't get both. Thinking is the Shinjin dasarak, the falling, casting off, sloughing off of body and mind. Yeah. You know, it's a selfless act. The thoughts come to me at the edge of the campfire. Yes. That means I meet them not as myself. I get out of the way of my poetry arising, of thinking coming to me, of uh, the wisdom of life ways emerging. Um, and so philosophy has its own set of techniques for uh, undoing the ego. The ego stands at the edge of the campfire and experiences the great doubt because what's beyond the edge, what's beyond the light is always measured from the perspective of me, the ego. And therefore it's always terrifying. And therefore I will bury the edge. I will bury the questions. I will bury the great expanse. I'll bury my life because I want to have me. But really the only way to go past the edge into the night is to let go of yourself. Now that's not a Zen insight only. I mean, that's everywhere once you start looking for it.
0: Oh, yeah. But it's hard.
1: And it's- so who's going to be running the academy? The, uh, the people who, <laughs> who went into the night or those who stand terrified at his periphery?
0: Yeah, oh, and that's, that's a real that's a real question. It's a well, real question. Well, it's a real question in general of who's going to be in charge because mm-hmm. one of the places that that comes up really clearly is in Gregory Bateson's work, the great oh, multidisciplinary yeah. scientist. Right. So he said, yes. when you say "I think," anybody who says "I think," you do not want that person in charge of any political or economic decisions because yes. they are making a fundamental mistake. Yes. And how how in the world do we get to that where we have actual elders? um who are who are who are the thought leaders rather than you know elon musk is the thought leader i mean if that's a thought leader then we are in trouble
1: yeah thought leader you know someone leading us into thoughtlessness right yeah that's another one of those great
0: words yeah like development means degradation right here we have to have kongsa just you know let's rectify the names right that's the first act thought leader means yes leading us into thoughtlessness that's wonderfully. That's
1: also, I think, the affinity of philosophy with the arts, with poetry. Mm-hmm. You know, in my neck of the woods, uh, I don't know a poet who doesn't say, "What I'm trying to do is rectify the words." That's right. Or I think, even in my own tradition, uh, the noble eightfold path, consummate speech. Consummate speech isn't, you know, make sure that you reiterate yet again the dogma, the answer, the official view. You know, rectify the words. Take language seriously. Speak carefully. Speak with care. And care, of course, what I love about care is it gives you another sense of worry, not as fear. But care as in, I take responsibility for this and I worry about what, what happens if we don't take care of language. If we don't take care of thinking. If we don't take responsibility for it. If mm-hmm. we're not careful, if we're not full of care. Yeah. Worry and appreciation. And you worry about it because you love it. You experience a deep gratitude, which is at the heart, I think, of Zen and philosophy. You know, Plato himself, I think, the immense gratitude, not only to Socrates, but to what Socrates allowed Plato to experience about his own mind and about thinking. To keep it alive, to be careful with it, to try to transmit that, not to transmit Platonism. You know, that is... Again, that's always the problem. How do you have Plato trying to transmit mind and live in a philosophical tradition that has been unduly marked by Platonism? Um, for which I do not hold Plato at one degree res- responsible. Yeah. That's always the challenge. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, be a Platonist I mean, is easy. I did all I have to do is, you know, believe in those principles, believe right. in that answer. But Plato was not giving you an answer. Yeah. He wasn't. He was bringing you into the wide expanse of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. And this is
0: this is part of the the the, the deflation of philosophy in the academy, as it becomes a knack. I mean, if you know how to analyze and construct arguments, I mean, it really is like a little game that you can play. And you know, I know, I don't. I don't I, you may know these academics too, but people who are professors of philosophy, and that's it. You know, it's a nine to five. I punch the card. I analyze these arguments, and I go home, and, you know, this, I live my crazy life. And, you know, it might be who knows what, you know, getting carried out of the bar with the grad students, you know, whatever it might be. And there's a there's a big gap there between this kind of care. And that's the thing that I sort of surprised me when that language of worry and concern appeared at some point. And, you know, people would start introducing themselves. I am professor so-and-so, and I worry about... You know, vagueness. You really, you worry about it, but it didn't seem like it's really the kind of care that we're talking about here. It's a kind of neurotic Uh,
1: fixation. Yeah. My worry is, you know, I hope that I will never say in a context that uh, matters, you know, no, I mean, what about this? That's all you need to say. Uh, But care, you know, I mean, I have also in mind Heidegger's Zorga, you know, which has also. These multiple senses of care. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zorga, also, I think of, you know, the man of cares, you know, the Jesus on Holy Saturday, the Dostoevsky in Jesus who's embracing death, you know, the man of sorrows. That's also Zorga, mm-hmm. you know, to the care. I mean, the care for the great matters for Dogen and for Mahayana, it's the great matters of living and dying. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is, this is the gold. And, uh, yeah, in a world in which, you know, First of all, when someone has a worry, I actually know they don't worry about anything at all because I know they don't really care. This is their job. You don't really care about what the answer is. Or if you do, it's just because you want the answer to show something about that's professionally useful to you. Yeah, I think... Th- I have a
0: question for you. I, I want to... I'm very tempted to to ask... Uh, several different questions here. I want to turn a little bit to your book. It's exciting. I, it's very clear. Because when I was reading this, I had a feeling we would just, uh, you know, be able to chat very easily. Because when I was reading your book, I felt like, you know, reading. Uh, it was a real sense of kinship. You know, this is a real brother. This is a person who, again, because of the, the practice, you know, the dimension of practice, I really do think it comes out that you can see that you would say things that a, another person wouldn't understand. That you would. Um. And I wanted to say earlier, part of the reason why I brought up Mark Rowland's book and Nadeau's and book is that the, your book is a book that I would recommend to, um, you know, a general reader who wasn't, even though one of the things that's disappointing uh, about your book in our context is that we, we're not going to be able to talk about it very easily because it's dense. It's very rich. That's a good thing. I mean, obviously, that's very nice, but it means it's uh, anybody who's expecting this to be an inter- a dialogue that kind of covers what the whole book is about. No, we're not going to be able to do that. The best we can do is touch on some of its r- richness. But I did want to turn toward it a little bit, and um, I don't. I, I wanted to maybe talk about a couple of things. One of the things that that you brought up that is relevant. Well, I, it was interesting that you too read Pope Francis, and. and uh, Boy, isn't that something? You mm-hmm. know that that text, especially the uh huh. You know, because it was a, a a a Catholic lawyer who got me to read that text, Danny Sheehan. Hi, Danny If you're out there, who's a kind of uh, really upper level person has been coordinating with the Jesuits for a long time because they were concerned about. We're talking like decades. They've been concerned about ecology and and asking him from a legal standpoint how to how to help the church help the world they started to see that these problems were coming in and now now with pope francis i mean i just couldn't believe that text um so there's there's this uh sensibility that started to come in that more and more and more surprising people and i'm just wondering what's a, what's a good entry place here one of the places that i thought we might touch on or talk about. I, I wanted to, to maybe talk about the meaning of wildness right now. Yes. And this question of whether or not nature is real. And in your book, um, you talk about uh, challenging the understanding that we have of wildness what would you like to say about that i mean i'll just maybe open that up what what resonates for you right now what do you i mean i can cite certain passages but let's just start in general what do you what do you think we need to think about or know or confront in the question right now what is wildness what is nature is nature real and how does that relate to the mess we're in
1: yeah so i'm going to say two things i'll say a small thing and then a big thing the small thing and i'll tie this into your observation that my book is dense um, I would say, first of all, I mean, it's quite easy compared to the show or really quite easy, even compared to Gary Snyder. Oh, um, yes. People oh, yes. think, Oh, yeah, Gary oh, Snyder. I, I recognize the words. This is easy. You know, uh, mountains, rivers without end. He says, that's class five rapids. I know. You know yeah. Get that's a guide. Right. Get a guide. That's okay. You know, um, at a certain point, why do you want everything so easy? Aren't you more serious than that? Anything worth re- reading really is going to require some work. And so I don't want to m- multiply the work unnecessarily just to make it as easy as it can be. But as Kierkegaard once said, if you make the difficult easy, it was never difficult. You know, it, it keep, should, it's just something easy that has been poorly said in a difficult way. Yeah. So these are difficult issues. And so I think the wild is a difficult issue and it's a very hard word to hear. And, Snyder is trying to win this word back, but why to win it back shows one of the challenges of even hearing this word. So we typically hear the word wild as the opposite of civilization. And that tracks a long intellectual habit that I'm writing against. Uh, Nature is what nature does and culture is what human beings do. And it's this big fork in the ontological road, you know, if it's completely natural, then that's good. And if it's organic, if nature did it, that's good. And if we did it, maybe it's messed up. Or maybe another version will say, don't trust nature. You know, we'll be starving. You know, we need to totally reorganize the world along four human cultural terms. Civilization would be opposed to nature. Uh, when we saw people from different civilizations and cultures, for example, indigenous people, we call them the naturals. Uh, because they weren't civilized in the way that we were. So this whole mess is a very hard thing to think. And so when my students go on spring break, they say, I want to go wild. So they escape the rigors of being a student and they get to just do whatever they want. The first thing I would say, just a simple observation. Do you want to go backpacking with someone who wants to go wild in the wild? It's the exact opposite. You know, the, uh, the vole does not pay attention. The turkey vulture eats a nice meal. Um, that's how it is. You walk off a cliff, you lose the trail, the path, you know, you've dropped your compass. Uh, you stayed out too late. You didn't bring a warm jacket. So a certain sort of a way, it's not the opposite of us. That's the problem. So, and this horse Snyder in the practice of the wild, that's where he, and it brilliantly, I think brings forward this distinction. Um, you know, if I had a penny for every dumb thing I've heard about that book and that term, uh, you know, all the ways in which people reinscribe the very thing that Snyder is trying to twist free from, even with pennies, I would be able to pay my rent. Um, it's, it's a hard thing to think, but it's, it's a simple idea, but it's not easy because we have to undo certain blocks. So he traces the word wild back even just etymologically to to get it, to, to get us to be able to hear something that we don't hear now in how we oppose ourselves to the wild you know if I were a wild person, I would be a savage you know which of course this means wild you know, the, the wild people are that but you know culture is to become unwild well the anthropocene is what culture looks like when it imagines that it's the opposite of Earth processes, You know, it's it's, it's been the, one of the most catastrophic symptoms of a fundamental lack of clarity about the human mind, that we're somehow in nature, that it's somehow the opposite of us, that we're somehow surrounded by it like an environment, that we're somehow stewards of it, that we're somehow in charge of it, that it's somehow there for us, uh, that so we're somehow separate or separable from it. Well, I don't know. If you believe that, I'll just cut off air because that's not you, and you can just enjoy your life being you, and you wouldn't live for more than a couple of minutes. Of course, we're of the wild. We're of these processes. Mm -hmm. So the wild, even etymologically, and here I think Snyder is able to just make a very interesting point that speaks to a lot of your concerns earlier, not just with me, but in your work more generally, to this minority report of the global history of countercultures. And that's where I think philosophy is. It's part of the minority report. It's part of the great counterculture that always comes up in culturally specific ways that resists delusion and power and domination and what eventually becomes the Anthropocene. And so he links the wild to the Dharma, what happens of itself that comes from itself. And in a way, you could say there are readers like Schelling who heard this also in the word nature, which the etymology of which is birthing, genesis, creation, creativity, autopoiesis, things making themselves of themselves. And this, of course, the wild is the Dharma and the practice of the wild. Well, on the one hand, that's a very clever way of saying Zen Snyder, as I'm sure your listeners know. Studied Zen for 10 years in Japan. Having studied Zen in Japan, that is hard to do it for 10 days. That was serious. That was a very serious. It's not a casual exposure. He's he's a deeply trained and deeply awakened Zen thinker. Um, Practice of the wild is Zen practice. Dogen is everywhere in the practice of the wild. And I put it this way. We can in the anthropocene, Anthropocene see the problem this way. We are our practice of the wild. Now, what that allows us to see is there are good practices, there are okay practices, and there are the dominant practices, which are species suicidal. We've lost a sense of the wild. So if we look at our cities, the correct question should not be, you know, uh, how can we make the city more dominant so that it's able to adapt to climate change? Well, no. Why are cities the opposite of the wild? We should make our cities more wild. That doesn't mean, you know, fling them into the opposite of themselves and we're going out there going, no. Integrate them into the evolving, dynamic, interrelated, natural processes that are the processes of the earth. That's also philosophy. Philosophy is going wild, as in it's loosening the grip of the dominant official view of reality, uh, and allowing the natural processes of thinking to happen of themselves. So we said earlier is no, I think. That's exactly it. Thinking is wild. It's not, I think if I think I constipate thinking because I measure everything according to what I know already, what I want to be true, what I believe. And you'll never think anything because that'll be a wall that thinking can't get past. If you let go of yourself and let thinking happen of itself, I mean, I've always regretted that the middle voice has dropped out of modern languages, most modern languages, certainly Indo-European languages. The middle voice, not an actor or an acted upon, not active or passive, but happening of itself. And thinking happens of itself. But you got to get out of the way of it. You know you are of thinking when you think of yourself is something that happens of thinking It's not me and then I think there is thinking, and therefore what I think of myself right now that's right. for example
0: that's right, yeah, and
1: so it's wild it's thinking is wild, and Snyder's quite clear about this. thinking is a clear example of a wild process, uh but so are mountains and water systems, so are forests forests aren't. Trees growing next to each other because some corporation, you know, planted a tree farm and says, "Look, there's as many trees now as there were before." It's the interdependent wild processes that evolve of themselves in very orderly ways over centuries. It takes centuries for a tree farm to turn to a forest. But I think you know we're called to be forest people. So it's interesting that Snyder also in one of his liminal spaces has been between mountains and flatlands. And I think it's quite interesting that in East Asia, one of the deep senses of mountains are mountains are where not like at this amount of feet becomes a mountain and no longer a hill. A mountain is uh, a terrain that resists rice uh, cultivation. And, you know, if you've been to Asia, of course, you see <laughs> there's what we would call mountains that are just terraced all the, way to the top with, with the rice paddies. But you can't do that on everything. And so a mountain is what resists human domestication. And so to be in the liminal stage between what is not human in our human systems, you know, to, to be sensitive to, uh, the systems that are not wholly in their purview of what we understand about ourselves, but we are of them. And they're alive, and they're mer- moving. And wisdom really is not just to know them or say a true statement about them. It's to think wildly, is what wisdom is.
0: Mm-hmm. Have a
1: wild mirror.
0: To be in accord with them, to be to be their thinking rather than our thinking. Because it's you said yes. constipated, but another word which you just brought up would be domesticated. We domesticate yes. our thinking, and yes. that's funny too because it's really interesting. For me, uh, what I love about that, when I read that about Snyder, I really loved it because I've been resistant. So by the way, I've said this before, Practice of the Wild should be required reading to live on Turtle Island. I mean, it really should be throw out Ben Franklin and read Practice of the Wild, This is, and especially The Etiquette of Freedom, if nothing else, because it's a masterpiece. But that book is so good. And wh- one of the things I always resisted was this way that that meditation is given the uh, image of domesticating something that was wild because it was taking that meaning of it's feral, it's 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 you know it's out of control, as opposed to this is the reverse, which I think is just much better to say no, we are trying to become the thinking of the wild, and yes. so that that you know the three jewels then, as as you also note in your book, become friends, teachers, and and the wild.
1: Yes, the wild, the Dharma.
0: That's right. Yeah, yeah. and so that's really interesting it's for Buddha. For, Teachers, the, the Buddha,
1: the Buddha, Sangha, Buddha, friends, friends. no, the Dharma,
0: the wild. The wild. And it's really interesting, then, for people to recognize that, that then, that what this is saying is that you are the wild. Yes. Your natural processes are, it is the wild that beats your heart. It is the wild that brings in the breath and takes it back out and circulates the blood and produces the thoughts.
1: Yes. I mean... Breathing is an enormous clue and point of disclosure uh, for what happens in thinking. Yes. If I breathe, I immediately be, my, my immediately my breathing becomes shallow. So I think even when you're meditating, one of the very first things you learn in Zen is when you sit down and you try to sit. I'm going to direct this process, and someone says, "Well, just try counting your breaths." It becomes very hard because you try to count them, and then they become different than you. And so there's me and my breaths. And of course, when you're sitting, you're breathing more poorly than you do before you sit down. Not better. And you just stick with that until you just smash a wall and fall away. And just breathing takes over. I mean, that's already an incredible you know, point of disclosure and revolution in your mind. Because you're not breathing. Breathing is breathing. And you're of this breathing. Yeah. And if you try to control it or make it yours, you're destroying your own body. That's you're right. you're injuring yourself. That's right. But so is thinking, thinking is the same thing. And so really we need practices. So there's lots of philosophers who can't count their breaths, put it that way. And they can't breathe. And so their thinking, of course, is oxygen deprived. It's rigorous, uh it's deep, it they work very very hard. Um you know, towards what? You know, my kingdom for something that no student would even want to listen to for five minutes? You know, why does everyone find you boring? (laughs) Well, that should be a deep clue. That's right. How could philosophy ever have been boring? How could they get hard, difficult, dense? Yeah, okay. So is everything else living? Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's life. The life source is there already because it's breathing. My thinking is breathing my body is breathing, and I suddenly see I'm in a world whose breathing cycles are being domesticated. That's right.
0: That's right. They're being domesticated. And we can see this, you know, you can in the untutored anybody. But certainly I remember registering this about some of my colleagues in academia is that, that you could see that their breathing was constrained. You could see the shallowness. Sometimes you could hear the breathing. You know, the kind of, the the unevenness, the struggle of just a person sitting next to you in a seminar room, and Mm -hmm. that um, it shows us that we are doing our lives unconsciously. And then, as you point out, you sit down to try to meditate, and you think, now I'm going to do this, and you think you're going to do it consciously, but you have to confront the paradox of non-doing very directly. And it really unites us, I really love those passages where you talk about this coming into the thinking of the earth, to recognize that our sort of touching that place. Let me see if I can find it here. This is, you have some quotes here from Jogin too. So you say that um, it is also the mind that is the great earth. This is, you're, you're mm-hmm. quoting um, Snyder. So when Snyder and the Mahayana, that's Mahayana Buddhist traditions, more generally speak of mind, They do not just speak of the mind that we habitually imagine to be inside of us, our internal landscape. It is also the mind that is the great earth, the external landscape. A billion worlds can be sat through within a single sitting, Dogen tells us. To realize that the earth has the deep structure of your own mind is to realize that the mind has the same deep structure as the Earth. This realization is fully transitive and non-dual. I really like that. That just puts your finger right on it, that recognition that we could just sit there, that the great experiment, forget the fMRI machines, I mean, they're great, the telescopes, right there, you touch the thinking of the cosmos and the great Earth. Yes. Yes.
1: I mean, I find it interesting that... These deep meditative traditions, which also produce really extraordinary philosophical traditions, and they're connected because you need a, the the package so that philosophy does not undermine itself, which it easily does when it can't breathe. You know that they also just figured out some things that it took contemporary physics to figure out. You know that you know that's. I'm not saying that they're proto science or that we shouldn't do physics. I mean, I'm very excited by everything that we're learning from physics. But it's interesting that just sitting there, some of these things can become present to you without a Hubble telescope or sonifying a a black hole. Um, That says something. It does, and it's
0: extraordinarily healing to have that experience, and so transformative. It's a shift that is extraordinary to be able to just touch that.
1: Yeah, I would say when you sit, to put it in a contemporary idiom, when you sit, you've been somewhere else. You're no longer in the Anthropocene. I mean, of course you are, in the sense that it surrounds you. But, you know, you're not of the Anthropocene. You know, you are suddenly realize that the Anthropocene is a betrayal of our friends and our teachers uh, and the wild. Our nature, that's right,
0: reality itself. And so there too, yeah. instead of saying, well, there's the meditative traditions and the philosophy, it's that without, those, without the full range of practices, you are, it is an anemic philosophy that can't breathe. You can't then call it, I don't think you can call it philosophy. You're, do, you're yep. practicing something that is philosophy holding its breath and, and yep. philosophy that can't breathe. And that produces the horrific consequence of human beings saying to the police, I can't breathe. It's the same problem. It's, yeah. you know, there's a kind of psychodynamic revelation in that. I can't breathe. Yeah. That's right, because you're in a culture that can't breathe.
1: Yeah, you can't. And it's interesting when we say can't breathe. Of course, I think of the Black Lives Matter and how that phrase resonated. And I can say, yeah, you know, we should also remember that ecology is not just Arnie and hiking. Of course, it includes those things. And those are invaluable teachers, Uh but it's also our politics, it's also what we do to each other, it's also how we are to each other, that really the wild includes the immense injustice of the history of civilizational politics, including practices that uh, are as bad as they have ever been these days. So I think in the wild includes uh why you would be an ally with people who, the reason why they can't breathe is because the policeman's nightstick is at their throat. That's the same thing as strip mining on some deep level.
0: Yeah, no, I, I, I really agree. I mean, this, the, the problem is ignorance. And I, I think one of the challenges we face is that we're putting names on it. You know, so now, instead of talking about the problem of human ignorance, we've just given it the name Karen. And so if you're you, mm-hmm. you know, in social media, Karen just stands in for ignorance as if the person using that phrase is not themselves ignorant. They're completely free. From ignorance and it's just this person so or whiteness and i think that's creating defensiveness in people who who uh, come from you know a lineage of, of people we would call white there's a feeling that ignorance has just been given the name white now which doesn't make any sense that's not going to get us resolved either if we don't understand that it's ignorance itself is the problem
1: yeah i mean snyder touches upon that very beautifully it's one of my favorite lines in the mountains and rivers without end uh when he evokes the famous ghost dance and the ghost dance goes back to Wavaka, uh, who famously said the white man will die when the, if we do the, the animals will come back and the white man will die. But of course, if you read his letter, of course, he says, befriend the white man. Um, be not because they're about to die and you, you know, you'll try to survive. It's because the white man equals a white supremacist ideology. So ignorance, but it's the ignorance by which I dominate uh the ignorance by which i'm intolerant the image by which you know, i force myself upon everything take what i will uh on my own terms uh i take what is not given this this whole world this whole world that wisdom traditions indigenous and non-indigenous have fought against always that's what dies the ignorance of white ideology dies and you know that's a win-win for everyone in their own way. I'm not saying that the harm is proportionately distributed, but I am saying the harm is to some extent distributed to all. It's an extremely injurious position. And so, yeah, this calling someone Karen. Yeah. Okay. Maybe that's true. Maybe that's got some very short-term political benefit, but it's at the level of symptoms. You're not getting to the level of depth that this requires, I mean, well, will doubtless became a whack-a-mole because these forces will keep coming up and maybe their names will change. Maybe their manifestations will change. But ignorance, it will find a way to manifest itself in any system unless you have practices by which you clarify it's workings so they don't dominate you.
0: Yeah, that's right. I mean, ignorance is, is, is like capitalism. You know, it just it, it keeps changing faces it you know yeah. it abhors a limit and tries to adapt itself to and that's why we have this problem of spiritual materialism mm-hmm. you know that any tradition any wonderful idea can be turned into oppression and violence and aggression and yeah you mentioned you know one of the things I understand what you're doing with the concept of wildness but one of the things that is is interesting is you i know it's it's nuanced and and i and I know you you probably you know you have an under, a good understanding of the nuance, but in your resistance to the notion of wilderness as a place where human beings don't go, I, I didn't notice you leaving space for places where human beings shouldn't go. I mean, are, yeah. aren't there limits? I mean, shouldn't we have some, and maybe the world, what I like is saying, well, we shouldn't use the word wild for that. We should use the word wild for these processes. I mean, that's a genius move on Snyder's part. But still there are places where Indigenous people, for instance, say, well, you don't go there, or you can only go there in the right frame of mind or in the right circumstances because these with processes, permission. yeah, with permission from the place.
1: Because, because you have to earn it. Yeah. So yeah, again, um, what I want to say with that, I'm just addressing the 1964 Wilderness Act, which by the way, I fully support this act. I think it's a net benefit, uh, but it has limits. So in 1964 Congress creates wilderness as a political idea uh, and really, in essence, what the problem they're trying to solve is wherever we go, it never survives us going there. You know, that has been the experience of Turtle Island. I mean, we inhabit it ruinously, catastrophically. And so I think of Ken Burns and his National Park series, you know, America's Greatest Idea. and gives it to the whole world. And yeah, it, may, it is a great idea. But what was the idea? In a few places – The great American idea is we'll stop being so American. It won't be American everywhere. But, you know, we sold these places as having no other commercial use or than the neighboring communities. So already there's a way in which we're creating wilderness as a a capitalist commodity. Um, But beyond that, it's a political idea. It's based on a certain way of being there. And the first thing it doesn't get is, well, I mean, the national park system and wild, areas that are designated wilderness can have no people. So people who've lived there on their own terms, so in accord with the wilderness, are, you know, were at times dispossessed from the parks because there can't be human beings there. And the deep miss is, of course, why can't we be there non-catastrophically? Why is wilderness to give something a right? It's interesting because the language of right, I think of what Kropotkin, the great anarchist, says, You know, rights are traditions in which we're very violent to each other. And so you're just trying to protect yourself or protect the earth from our depredation, from our violence, from our exploitation. The key thing is, why? Why are we so violent? Why are we so? It's not because we have to be. because there have been wild cultures all over the place. Turtle Island was some of the most successful wild cultures in terms of their capacity to be here for the long-term has never been a long-term civilization. There's only been long-term cultures. Every single one has been wild. And so the first thing you simply say is we're not using the opportunity to look at ourselves when we define the wild as the opposite of us. Now, I think it's great. First of all, that the custodians of the wild will simply say with that mindset, you are not going to our sacred places. And of course, you'd say they're 100% right. And that we would feel outrage shows you that, man, that's a deep problem. Go sit in meditation. Go listen to this podcast. Go do what you got to do because you've got some homework to do. You should be very disturbed at this place that they believe to be beneficial to all. They do not think that you deserve it. And you will simply, even if you were to see it, you would see nothing. You would you would desecrate it. Your very presence would be a desecration. Now, that's a gift. You should look at yourself. Congress should look at itself and say, why do we need wild places where we can't be? You know, why don't we say, well, okay, there'll be areas that we protect, um, but wildness should be everywhere. New York City should be wild. Los Angeles should be wild. Those are the two cities that make it in Snyder's mountains and rivers without end. You know, they're failed wildernesses, but wilderness is still always pushing at the door as we crush it. Um So I'd say those things. Uh And then I go even further. You know, there are places that are very difficult to be. That was the original definition of a mountain. You know, the place that resists easy habitation. Now I think those are tremendous teachers. To be able to preserve places, in which is very, very hard to be human. Those are, that's like Zen. Those are incredible teachers. And also to have a sense of place, not just wild as in we'll let these processes be completely left to themselves when they never were. I mean, we have there's some evidence that we have sequoias that live so long because people love sequoias because they love sequoias. They would burn the areas around them so that when the forest fires came through, the sequoias were not lost. I mean, human beings have traditionally, they've lived a long time, been part of operating ecosystems. Their interactions can be beneficial for it. They don't need to be taken away from it in order for it to thrive. They can be part of the ecosystems flourishing. That's what a deep study of anthropology reveals to us. But all, all that being said, It's a different attitude. There are places you go to with trepidation and respect, rarely and hardly at all. So I think right now what's happening, for example, on the Big Island of Hawaii and the fight over the telescopes, there's already plenty of telescopes up there. I love telescopes. I love that they exist. I love cosmology. I love stargazing. I'm so happy for them. And I completely agree with the indigenous Hawaiians that you cannot build a new telescope there. You should never have built those telescopes. Because what you took away was Mauna Kea as a sacred place, a place to be on there. You had to earn it. You know, you you took away its power to teach us. And so I think the Wilderness Act, it's, it gives us in the wilderness that we need because the alternative is it will be destroyed, but it's not allowing us to understand this is not a solution because it doesn't recognize the problem. The problem is us. The problem is us. And that's what we have to look at. And, you know, the earth is all wild. We can't have just wild places, but we can have sacred places. And those sacred places are our teachers.
0: Yeah. Oh, and that's why, uh, you know, Snyder also does that work too, right? In a good land and sacred land, in yes. the wilderness, right, wildland. So, yeah, what's uh, can we stop trying to make the land good? And uh, you know, I in one of the uh, one of the earlier podcasts, I sort of made fun of John Locke and this idea that you know it's, it's only human labor that makes the land good, and he really sounds silly from that perspective. But it's interesting yeah. too because we see that 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 Turtle Island depended on some of these wonderful um, ecological uh you know I, I hesitate to use the word ecological engineers but you know in the in the most positive sense these participants like beaver because beaver radically you know we would say from a certain perspective that the beavers intervened but they were they were part of yes. the wild processes and human beings could live like that
1: you know and have lived like that and, and have, have. Absolutely. absolutely the thing is you know all long lived cultures exclusively have lived and some variation of that spectrum somewhere on that spectrum uh all who have not done lived like that have not lived long term and if you look at the indigenous stories what's so interesting from an ecological perspective is they humans are just part of a larger cast of characters and everything cooperates son of raven working with son of deer working with um with the salmon working with the uh, trees you know that these are our relatives, and of course, in a way, you see that human beings flourish when they participate in an ecology, when they work with it, when they're working with all the other relatives. Relatives are another way of saying part of the species whose presence in an ecology plays its role in making the presence of anyone and anything in that ecology possible. Um, there you have it. I mean that that's such
0: a look at that. Division between what we call civilization, you can see why that it almost makes sense that to think of there being a, a division between the two because what we refer to as civilization is we 're going to put our life energy into me, us, yeah. and every other being on the planet is putting all of their life energy into making our life possible, and so like you know the, the corporation you go in there, you put in all this energy. And it does not go to support the the community of life. Or we go to the gym, exert tremendous energy, and it's completely me, me, me. You know, when bear or deer or beaver exert that same love energy, it goes to all the other beings. And so how in the world do you navigate that shift? And is it even possible? Sometimes I think that that's what, what we refer to as love wisdom or philosophy in the various places it has occurred. Like in the, in the much more narrow sense. So I think that love wisdom has a general enough, has a common ground sense that indigenous cultures had it too. But then when I think of somebody like Buddha or Socrates, I think of someone who wakes up to the sensibility that, wait a second, we are disconnected from the wild. It's almost mm. like this is the, the, the immune system of the soul has to bring these people up to say, hey, you, you, you are in this thing called civilization, which means you are cut off from the process that you are. And now mm. we need somebody to run around. I think I see Buddha as a consummate philosopher. He's there to say here, let me diagnose this problem. You are divorced from the natural processes that actually govern the world, the thinking of the world. And let me show you how to put yourself back in attunement with it.
1: Yeah, Hallelujah. I love what you said. Now, first of all, I love that the Buddha, is if he is a philosopher, he's insisting that this is true about philosophy. You get the full package. The philosophy is how you breathe. It's not just cerebration because the cerebration belongs to a more integrated and holistic wild process. And you had to have all of it working together uh, in order to produce thoughts that are clear and beneficial. And then I think of the animals and in indigenous culture. What I love about it too, I think of one of the one variation of the many stories about the creation of Turtle Island. When human ways, and of course, the indigenous stories aren't like this was automatic. This is hard won wisdom. And we tell these stories because we, too, have blown it. So our culture is how do we produce people who are not so diluted? And so the the human-caused floods have destroyed everything, and everyone's on the back of the turtle. But there's no land. And the animals that are on the back of the turtle who've done nothing to cause the flood are jumping into the water to try to bring up mud to create the land. And the one that finally does it digs, goes so deep that he doesn't come back up, just the mud. And you think, wow, this animal. Of course, it's true, you know, that we are also the result of the benefaction of immense and immeasurable and incomprehensible non-human kindness and sacrifice. Not sacrifice as in they're planning something, just simply their role in the ecology has made possible not just their lives, but the hidden life of all that is to come. And so I think, yeah, this deep gratitude for all the relatives and philosophy also then being the moment in which you can very, very clearly see our spatial alienation. That includes from each other, that includes from non-human animals, that includes from our own mind. And that includes being here without being present to being here. I mean, my friend, Andrew Schelling, one of the things he always tells me, and he went to learn, he lives in uh, Colorado. He's in Europa. Uh, he studied Arapaho because uh, as a poet scholar, you know, he said, you know, the names that we have just for our non-human relatives here, these all had names before by people who knew what it was to help and be helped by them, who knew these deep, wild reciprocities. We just come in here and say, well, that looks like an antelope. It's something we saw in Africa. You know, the names are thrown upon things from people who had no idea what it was to be here, who were spatially alienated, but with no curiosity about addressing that and instead globalizing the spatial alienation of Conquest. Mm -hmm. and that begins already with the names for our relatives. Yeah, absolutely. I think you see, yeah, in the names for the animals with which we live, we see no sense that their benefit to us is not simply their commodities to sell or things to eat uh, or things with which we can recreate. This, too, is the Sangha. And that's the big theme of the book, too. The Great Earth is the Great Earth Sangha. And Mm -hmm. that Sangha the deep moment in which the clarified mind is grateful for the past present and future benefaction of being part of this immense web and the human contribution is we can sing a song about it or talk about it on a podcast of course and
0: of course we we do we can do more than that i mean i like uh, snyder's idea that we're the great entertainers you know yeah we're, we're the ones who all the other animals can look at us and it's wonderful to think that we could bring joy to Raven and Wren and, and Coyote and all the rest of these guys but um, and gals. But uh, there's something else, you know, we're, we're, we can make ecologies the way beaver did, you know. we don't. It doesn't have to be with chainsaws and we don't have to think of it as just chopping down trees, but that's the question. How do we figure out what our... Because that is also, to me, part of what Dogen is teaching us, the idea of the samadhi of receiving our use... You yes, know, the Jiju Yusamai. You you know, where Sartre said, man is a useless passion, or human beings are a useless passion, Dogen is saying, no, that's ridiculous. You have a use, but you haven't got the mind to receive it. Only with this mind can we say, this is my use. This is what I give back to the community of life. And you find it that way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think there's a reason why poor Sartre ends up being on the chopping block when you get the really deep Japanese Zen-informed, Zen-sensibility philosophers, like the Kyoto School philosophers. Yeah, Nishitani. First of all, it's a useless passion, because what's he looking for? (laughs) Well, the idea of what we are. Why do you want that? How about a mind that can receive, in each moment, your own becoming? That's it. Not settle into some generality about what we are. Why would you want to do that? I mean, that is a useless passion, but here's the thing. The quest for that was... (laughs) a useless idea. Why did that ever even occur to us as something that we should want or not want? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, pe- you know, uh, Doka is not worried about what we are, but being able to have a mind that allows the self, which is no particular self, but in a way here and now the web of all selves as they breathe in their wild processes. Mm. Look at that. Even too. a smaller thing. Like this. I think like, for, for example, we're doing experiments now with psilocybin for those who have terminal illnesses. Yes. And, of course, they look at their own death the same way that we look at the great doubt in our living. You now I die. But, you know, Ueda, who just passed away, wrote a very beautiful essay towards the end of his life on death. And, of course, you could say all those things, you know, the scandal, blah, 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 all the things we say about death. But he says, look, those are always told from the perspective of the I who die of course, that's got to be the, the falsest thing of all. If it's not even true, I love or I think, you know, there's love or there's you. There's thinking or there's you. Well, death's got to be the easiest one of those to see. You know, it's not not something we're doing. You know, it's happening of itself, whether you want it to or not. Uh, and it's happening in such a way that really you can't imagine. I'm, I'm going to surf the wave of my death. No, the one who would surf is going to be gone. But why always the I? It's teaching us. That's not the point. So even these poor people who are looking at death from their ego perspective, and, of course, it's not something that I want. The teacher's not, well, therefore you should want it. No, don't think about it from the I, you know, as something to want or not want. It happens when it happens, just like everything else. But, you know, they then take these heroic doses of psilocybin, and the result is they're present to the great web, but there's no me who's present. And what it does is it just shuts off the part of the mind that's so ego-domesticated and domesticating. It just, it just floods it temporarily. Yeah. And the result is, wow, there's dying, and I'm grateful even for that. Now I'm not saying to your listeners they should or should not take psilocybin. I'm just want to multiply all the different ways in which we could begin to think. Yeah, it's this teaching is everywhere. It's in the thought of our death. It's in paying attention to an ecology. It's in reading a good poem. It's in following your good work. It's everywhere. Yeah. It, it really but is. you know, we should remember that philosophy is. It's always going to be the challenge. Right. If I your you know, philosophize, you know. you're going to have you're going to have to you're going to, you're gonna have, to you're gonna have to come down.
0: Well, there's a lot. Yeah, the coming uh, the, the, I mean there's a, that's very loaded, right? Because actually I did a series on on uh, psychedelics and in general it's about working with the medicines of our world. So anybody who hasn't yes. caught that is worth listening to. But because there is this issue that you can there's a difference between a trained mind that goes into that kind of experience like mm-hmm. a psilocybin experience and an untrained mind. And that's one of the things: is can you come back and deliver medicine in return? Um, more yes. than more than just okay. Wow, that was amazing. But w- w- how do we actually receive that teaching and engage with that? And I think that yes. goes all the way back to Plato because he went through the mysteries and he embraced that that um, important slogan: "Die before you die, and when you die, you won't die."
1: Yeah, and so I completely yeah. agree with you. By the way, including about psychedelics, and I think the key is to frame them so that we can make ourselves available to their teachings yes they are Mm -hmm. teachers they're teachers plant just like philosophy and um i think also in the zen tradition you know die once so that you can finally live that's right that's
0: right same way yeah it's the same same essence wow this is wonderful. I, you know, I had a feeling this this dialogue might go this way. You know, that I just really uh, <laughs> figured we would range around as uh, two philosophers, and it's been a, a real delight. I want I want to ask you: Is there anything you'd like to say in summary, final thought? I don't have a profound question to ask, but just to turn it over to you to um, close, however you'd like.
1: Um, I would ask the listeners just to. Um Hear what I hear, which is the joy of speaking to a fellow searcher and to hear what's between our words also. Um, to hear really that this is deep down, uh, what can happen if we slow down and awaken. You know, this is the Sangha. The Sangha is the space between us that animates us, that gives us our differences, but also gives us our appreciation and appreciation and responsibility for each other so i'm immensely grateful to have been around you for your spirit for your deep teaching for your deep sense of things um, deeply appreciative that uh, i know it's real because you don't hoard it to taste it at once is simply to try to make it available as your life work so i see that you're doing that and i'm extremely happy to have been a small part of that so thank you
0: well, that's a mutual regard, my friend. and I really would love to have you back again. And who knows, maybe we can talk more about the book we didn't talk as much about, but we did. We we totally talked about it. And I, I encourage people to read it, give it a read. And then I am looking forward to Nietzsche and other Buddhas. I'd like to, to read that. I always think of him as, you know, because he really expressed that, maybe you even have that in the book, that he, he said he wanted to be a Western Buddha.
1: Oh yeah. And I oh, really well, I, I, you know, I spend a considerable amount of time thinking through what that might look like. Yeah. So.
0: I'm really looking forward to that because I love him in so many ways and see him as a guy who was desperate to realize a non-dual philosophy but didn't have all the tools. Didn't 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 have what they had developed in other cultures, and especially he just, uh, you know, so I, I'm just really excited about that project. So thank you for doing that work.
1: Yeah, he found he found his own way. And, he did. You know, he didn't find everything, but he found something very valuable. Very much uh, so. so. I'd love to talk about that. I'd, you know, I would love it if people would read the Snyder and Dogen text, and if they have comments or questions that they want to share with me, they can contact you. I hope that would be okay. Absolutely, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, please do get I'd be touch. very happy
1: to yeah. respond. Yeah, I'd be very happy to respond to anything that people... Uh, might have in terms of questions or comments.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tetsuzen's work really—I, I, I, highly recommend it. And and as he said, it's not that—it's um, not that the work is is dense in the way Dogen's dense. I just mean it's rich, it's thick, it's rich with so much in it, and that's the density that I mean. That it could you could really slowly read that book, and I think the average educated person can get through that book, but. It does have plenty that, as you said, we we want books that are over our heads to some degree. And Mm -hmm. it's not so over the head uh, as Dogen is, but that doesn't make it less. It's a really, really wonderful and important text. And it was a joy to read and to feel that sense of kinship with you. So thank you again, Tetsuzen, for that.
1: Thank you. you. you what did Zarathustra say? Zarathustra said, uh, I want to be bred as I write with blood. You know, the the oxygen. That's what brings the oxygen to our brain. So... That's, thank it. That's you all it. so yeah. much. Thank That's you, thank you, it. thank you. Blessings to you, and uh, thank you. I really appreciate it. Wonderful.
0: And thanks to all of you for listening. As usual, if you have any questions, reflections about uh, Jason Wirth's book or about anything that we brought up today, the wild, the wildness that is you, ecology, the crisis that we face, and how we can navigate our way through it, please send it in through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring some of those questions into a future dialogue, or I can put you in touch with Tetsuzen if, if that's appropriate. And until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.